If you have not been with us, uh, we are at the end of the book of Ephesians. We're in chapter 6 this morning. We come to the end of a uh, letter that the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. And as you turn there this morning, uh, this week I was reading in 1 Chronicles. And if you don't know what that is, that is a book in the Old Testament. In uh, 1 Chronicles, it has a lot of records there. And I was reading about... Uh, not only a guy named King David, who was king of Israel, but uh, of some of his soldiers. And he had a group of men called his mighty men. And in chapter 11, it it lists uh, 37 of these guys. And when you read them, you're like, I want them on my team. Uh, I was reading about one of the mighty men, this guy named Jashobim, a Hakamite, who killed 300 men by himself at one time in the midst of battle. I mean, imagine a soldier taking out 300 uh, with whatever spear or whatever they had. Uh, It it goes on another guy. He took a spear and killed 300 people. But there's a crazy story where these three guys that were the leaders of the mighty men, David's just talking out loud. and He's like, man, I wish I could have a cup of water from that well in Bethlehem. So without telling him, these three guys, they take off, fight through the enemy lines, get to the well. I can picture like two of them fighting while one guy's filling up the cup for him. And then they fight their way back out and they bring this cup of water to King David. And he's like, I can't drink this because you guys like gave up your lives to bring me a cup of water. I mean, these are the guys that you want on your team. These are guys who can battle. And this is is, uh, the one guy, though, that stands out to me. His his name is Eleazar, the son of Dodo the Ahoite. But it says, he was with David when the Philistines were gathered there for battle. There was a plot of ground full of barley, and the men fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and killed the Philistines, and the Lord saved them by a great victory. This guy took a stand when the enemy was coming upon them, and he fought until they thwarted the enemy. And this morning, you need to know, if you need the curtains pulled back, we have a very real enemy that is present and is working against us, and we're called as believers to take a stand against that enemy. This morning, as we look at the text in Ephesians 6, the big idea is this, the believer is empowered by the Holy Spirit to stand in the battle for the name of Jesus who has won the victory. I'm going to read Ephesians 6 verses 10 through 20. Paul writes, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and shoes for your feet. Having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, 
Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. The word of God. Father, we ask that in this moment, you would empower us to stand in the battle that you would empower us to stand against the enemy that is very real and coming against us. Father, we are so grateful, we are so thankful that you've poured out your grace and mercy upon us. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would give us understanding this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would protect us from the way that the enemy would come against us. Give us the eyes to see, the ears to hear from your word this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, what we want to do is look at verses 10 through 12 and how to stand in the battle. And I can think of different movies that I've seen over the years where there's a breach in the wall or a opening in a line and there's someone needed to stand in the gap and they stand there and they defend as the enemy attacks And this is what the Apostle Paul is saying. He's saying at the end of the letter, he says, finally, in conclusion, at the end of this, he's like, hey, you need to be strong in the Lord. And so I put there three questions for you in the outline if you're following along. What are we to do? We are to stand strong in the Lord, to be strong. In verse 10, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. If you turn over a couple pages to chapter 3, verse 16, This is what the Apostle Paul prayed for the church and what we need to pray for one another. He says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. If you haven't been with us the last few weeks, specifically, we've been looking at this strength, this power, this might that comes from the Holy Spirit. And so we've been praying Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, verse 21 lately and saying, Holy Spirit, fill me up. There's no way that you and I can stand against the enemy unless the Holy Spirit fills us with the strength and might of God. And the second question is, how are we to be strong in the Lord? By putting on the armor of God. Look at verse 11. Put on the what armor of God? What's it say there? The whole armor. Highlight, circle, underline that. You don't just put pieces of it on. You put the whole armor on because if you don't put certain pieces on, you leave an opening for the enemy to take you out. So you put on the whole armor of God. And if you look back at chapter 4, verse 24, it says put on the new self. There and here is like an order from a commander to those under him saying, you need to do this. This is your responsibility. You can't save yourself. God does that work, but you are to put on the armor, something that we are commanded to do. And why should we put it on? To stand against Satan's schemes. Verse 11 says that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And here's why I want to spend a few minutes because I believe that too many Christians don't have a right understanding of who Satan is. That we either belittle Satan and not make much of him at all, or we lift him too high and we need to be reminded, Satan is not God. Satan is not God. He was created as a guardian cherub. Ezekiel chapter 28 tells us that. 
Other pa- passages speaks of him being an angel of light that, you know, we, some of you may get your kicks out of watching horror movies. And you know what? What horror movies do is they glorify Satan and the demons. And what they put out in those movies are not what Scripture points out. That angels that were created to worship God, Satan led a host of them against God. They were cast out of heaven. But Satan is wicked. He is vicious. And it's clear that he is not God. And so I've heard too many Christians think that Satan is all-knowing. And what I mean by that is they'll say statements like, oh, well, he knows what I'm thinking. Satan is not God. God is all-knowing. He knows what you think. He knows before and after and whatever you do. But Satan has no idea what you're thinking in your mind. So stop elevating him to that. Stop believing lies of the world and the way that movies and things portray him. Satan is not all-knowing. Satan is also not everywhere at all times. For some reason, I hear Christians say, no, the devil made me do it. That's another thing we'll look at in a minute here. He didn't make you do it. Satan is not all-powerful, but he's not everywhere at once. All of you need to read Job chapter 1. It's a book in the Old Testament. What happens is God, the, the, it says the angels come to God daily, and they're uh, t- giving reports to him in a sense. And Satan shows up, and God says, hey, look at my servant Job. You ever thought about trying to go after him? And he's like, hey, if you do this, he will curse you. He'll turn from you, God. So he lets him do some work, and Satan's power is controlled. In chapter 2, he comes against him. He goes, God's like, hey, see, he didn't turn against me. He says, take his health away, and he'll curse you. He's all right, well, you just can't kill him. And so you read this fascinating interchange between God and Satan, but it's clear that Satan is not everywhere at once. He could be in this place right now with this, or he could be in Africa right now. He's not everywhere at once. But as we'll see in a minute, there are a multitude of fallen angels, demons, which are are scattered around the world, and they are under the orders of Satan and doing the work that Satan would want to have happen. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, tells us this about Satan, that he's the accuser of the brethren who accuses them night and day before God. Just like with Job, Satan is, if you're a believer, Satan, the enemy, is constantly accusing you, making accusations against you before God Almighty. But don't um, misunderstand this. Satan is not all-powerful. He is under the control of God Almighty. And one day, he's going to be put down, cast into the lake of fire for all of eternity. But he is not all-powerful. He cannot make you sin. He can tempt you all he wants. We'll talk about the schemes in a minute. But he cannot control you. So saying the devil made me do it is not true. It's not biblical. John chapter 8, verse 44, it says this about the devil. Jesus says, you are the father of the your, you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth but there because there is no truth in him when he lies he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of what the father of lies if you go back to our text it says that we need to be able to stand against the schemes of the devil Do you realize that Satan has schemes that he brings against you? The word schemes there means methods, that he has methods, various methods to to go after the young and the old, the rich and the poor, the wise and the foolish. And so he has schemes that he brings against you. 
but are you aware of them? Do you know that the enemy is constantly at work against God's people and also, as we'll see in a few minutes, against those who are not believers. So if you're not a believer here, I'll tell you this. It's because Satan's blinded you. We'll look at this in a passage in just a moment. But Satan has schemes, and the word also is a picture of if you've ever seen a snare put to catch birds that fly into them or a snare to catch small animals, that's the picture of what Satan's doing when he comes after you is he sets a snare, and he wants you to be trapped in it or a, a picture of thieves coming upon someone. That's what Satan does, that thing that you thought was so great, and you're later like, oh, I got trapped is because he's the father of lies. His scheme is to present something great, a bait, and he hides the hook. On Friday, I was out fishing. So excited I could go fishing. And I caught my first trout as a Montana resident. I was like, yes. But you know what? The reason I caught it, I picked out a good fly. It looked beautiful. It was supposed to look like a salmon fly. And there's a hook hidden in there. And I'm like, there's a fish by that rock. And I'm casting to it like the third cast, like, bam, got the fish. He thought it was a good-looking salmon fly. I baited him, and he got the hook. That's what Satan does to us. It's like if you, any of you have ever tried to give a child medicine that tastes horrible, you bait the hook. You put it in peanut butter and jelly. You mix it in this fruit smoothie, you say, it's going to taste wonderful. Then they take it, and they're like, you lied. You're a liar. That tastes horrible. A spoonful of sugar does not help it go down well. <laughs> Do you see what Satan does with simple things in this world, even good things, to bait the hook so that we fall into temptation and sin? He used this method with Adam and Eve and said, hey, take this fruit, because if you eat this fruit... You're not going to die. You're going to be a God. Be like a God. He tried it on Jesus. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus has been fasting. He's out in the, in the, in the wilderness. And, and, and while he's, he's out there, Satan comes to him at one point, shows him all the kingdoms of the world, says, hey, I will give you all of this if you worship me. But it didn't work on Jesus. He used the word of God. The way that we fight the schemes of the devil is to hate all evil. To know the word of God so that we can identify the bait that's set before us. I think of Joseph who was in, Gen in the book of Genesis that he had a master and his wife, his master's wife kept coming after him and said, hey, will you sleep with me? I want you to, to, to go to bed with me. And he's like, I can't do that thing. And one day she even traps him, grabs a hold of his jacket, and he literally runs out even though the bait was there as well as the hook. King David saw the bait of the woman, and he took the bait, but the hook stung him because he committed the sin of adultery, and then after that, murder of one of his 37 mighty men, Uriah the Hittite. You go, how did King David, a man after God's heart, go from here to here? It's because he believed the lies of Satan. And so you need to know Satan's schemes, but also you need to know that he has an army. Look at verse 12. It says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Satan and one of his tactics would be for the church to fight amongst one another, that we would go after one another, that we would do whatever, sin however, so we would fight with one another. But our fight is not with other believers. It's not with other churches. Our fight is against the enemy, which is Satan and the demons. 
It says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. There's a supernatural battle going on constantly around us. Satan does have power, and he does come after us. The demons come after us, but there is no need to fear. Look at verse 12, the, name, the, the, the titles of his uh, army there. It says, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so when you think about his uh, work here on earth and the fallen angels, you need to think about the fact that there's a number of angels scattered across the globe, and they're positioned in certain ways, given certain orders that they would tack in certain ways to come after us. If you go read Daniel chapter 9, there's a guy named Daniel who's a man of God, and he's praying, and in chapter 9, he prays and asks God specifically for something. Now, many times we pray, and we're like, man, I waited a long time for that answer, or whatever. Well, what you have is a clear picture of God answering prayer and God in control, because in chapter 9, he prays. Chapter 10, an angel shows up and speaks to Daniel, and he says, hey, when you prayed 21 days ago, this is 21 days later. He says, God answered your prayer and sent me. But you know what I've been doing as an angel the last 21 days? I've been fighting against the prince of Persia, another angel, a demon. And it took Michael, another chief angel, to come and help this angel fight against the demon so that he could then go and give the answer to Daniel. There's a battle going on that sometimes we don't even think about. It's serious deal that we must consider today. But the good news is this. The good news is in 1 John chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. It says, little children, let no one deceive you. You know, Satan's the schemer. He's the one that wants to deceive us. Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason, here it is, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now we love looking to the cross and saying, thank you for forgiving me, Jesus. We love celebrating the empty tomb and saying, Jesus is alive. But we need to understand that Jesus didn't come only to provide forgiveness and salvation. He came to thwart and destroy and wipe out the works of the enemy, the devil. So you may think at times that the enemy is here. They've got some stronghold here. You need to be reminded of the cross, that Jesus at the cross, when he died and bled and at the resurrection rose again, he conquered sin, he conquered death, and he conquered Satan. And God's word tells us in the book of Revelation that Satan will be cast into hell, the lake of fire for eternity, him and all of the demons and all who reject Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So if we are to stand and we know the schemes of the enemy and how real that the enemy is, we need to then look at what Paul says in verses 13 through 20, and we need to understand how to withstand the enemy. Withstanding the enemy is what we see in verses 13 through 20. 
And here it is with a command. It's urgency. He says, now stand, verse 13, therefore, in light of what he just told us about Satan and the enemy, in light of the fact that we can have the Holy Spirit fill us with the power we need, therefore, take up the what armor of God? The whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, Earlier in Ephesians, we saw he spoke about the evil day, about now walking in this world and having done all to stand firm. If you'll notice in the text today, he repeats the word stand, withstanding, stand firm a number of times. That's the call. He doesn't say to go and attack. And so what we have for us in God's word is it's clear Satan has methods and schemes, but God has given us methods and tools to stand against the enemy as they attack. And so what we need to do is look at verse 14, and you need to arm yourself for battle. Arm yourself for battle. Verse 14, stand firm. Therefore, having fastened the belt of truth. Now, some of these armor pieces that we look at, we can get a better picture if we look at what some of the Roman soldiers wore at the time when the Apostle Paul was writing this. Uh, since he was in prison, and Scripture tells us that when he was writing this in prison, he was most likely there with one or two Roman guards on his side, maybe even chained to one. So maybe he's looking at the armor that they're wearing at the time. But he says, put on the belt of truth. They would put on this belt that would have these strips of leather to protect your groin. It was an important part of it. And if it wasn't strapped on tightly and right, it could fall down and it would be a weak point in the attack. But it is the belt of truth that he speaks of. If Satan's schemes are to lie to you, then he's going to tell you things like this. You ever heard this? You can't walk in holiness like it says here. You're a sinner. I saw what you did this week. You're horrible. You ever thought in your mind or heard things or people say, there's no forgiveness? You're not forgiven? How about this one? You ever heard this? If you want God to love you, then you need to work really hard for it. And what you do is when you hear those lies, you go to God's word. You're like, hey, we were just studying this in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, 8, 9, and 10. It doesn't say I have to work for God's love. It says that I am saved by the grace of God through faith in him, not by works, so I can't boast about it. And so I'm like thankful. God does give me work to do, but he loves me because he loves me, not because of any work that I do. Or you just say to those lies what Jesus quote, said in John three sixteen: For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, what? Believes. Did he say whoever works? No, whoever believes will not perish but have eternal life. The enemy's tactics and schemes are to get you to believe a bunch of lies so that you get distracted from the work that you're to do. Because in Ephesians 2 verse 10, it says that we're created to do good works. God has given the church, given the believers a lot of work to do, or he would have just like taken us up to heaven as soon as we believed. Instead, you're like, why does he have us here? It's clear in Ephesians that he's given us work to do, and so we're to be about that work, but when we listen to the lies of the enemy, we get distracted, and we don't go about the work that God has called us to do. He also says there, besides the belt of truth, verse 14, put on the breastplate of what? Of what? Righteousness. Put this piece around your trunk that they would wear that, to protect your heart, your vital organs, your lungs, to make sure that from front or behind or that you would not be uh, uh, injured. 
a, a picture of a, almost like a, a leather type of shirt with some metal over it to protect them from the attack. Our defense and putting on that piece is in Ephesians 4 verse 24. It says, and put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Now we studied this, but when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, not only are you saved, but the righteousness of Christ is imputed to you. It's covered over you. So when the Father sees you being attacked by the enemy who's saying, you're a sinner, you're not a child of God, the Father says, that is my child who I love, who I died for. And I have given him the righteousness to stand before me in a right manner. The, verse 15, it says, And as, your, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. I was reading this week, and if, I, if I'm off on the exact amount, uh, you can tell me later, but I was reading that the tarsals on the top of your feet take somewhere between four and five pounds of pressure to break. And so people, when they're being attacked in self-defense, they're told, hey, take your heel and stomp on the top of that person's foot as hard as you can and break those bones. That's painful. Some of the Roman legionnaires wore some very heavy sandals with protection over their feet. And then I was reading that some of them even had thick nails that went through the bottom so they could dig into the ground. And I was thinking about how this, taking up this stand there, it says that those shoes are putting on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. It's not necessarily here meaning this preaching of the gospel, but refers to the gospel as a foundation. If you go back to Ephesians 2, verse 20, we saw this. The foundation stone of our faith is who? Who is it? Jesus. I told you before, I got to say this every week. Ask and answer. Say it. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of the foundation. It's who we believe in. And so it's a wonderful picture when it says put on the feet, the shoes over the feet, the gospel of peace. It's put on Jesus. Are you spending time in God's word reading what Jesus did, what he spoke? Are you reading the Old Testament which prophesied that Jesus would come? Are you reading the apostles which say here's what Jesus accomplished in his death, burial, and resurrection, and Jesus is returning? Put on those Shoes the gospel of peace and stand firm. Verse 16 says this, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. At all costs, you are to protect your body with the shield. The shield of faith, and, and you read in the Old Testament, some shields were so huge that the soldier couldn't carry it, so he had an armor bearer that would carry it for him. In Paul's time, there was a smaller shield that Roman soldiers would carry, and it was like two planks of wood glued together and leather covered over it and some other material, and they'd have metal on the top and the bottom. And what they would do before they went to battle, they knew that war was happening, is they'd take their shield and put it in water and just soak it. You're like, oh, wow. Why? Because the enemy would take arrows and they'd put fire to it 
and fire them at the people they're attacking. And so when you raise that shield and that fiery dart hit your shield, the water in the shield will put it out. And it says in verse 16, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And some of these flaming darts and the enemy, again, the schemes are kind of like this. That's just a little bit of sin. It's okay. Um, just take the fruit. Uh, God's lying to you. Uh, that, that gossip, that's not really gossip. You just need to tell everyone to pray for those people. You know, we, and we, we think about these little things, and it's like these flaming darts, um, and we need to put up the shield of faith and put those things out. And then it tells us in verse 17, not only are we to arm ourselves for battle, but you're to take up the armor of God. You're to take up the armor of God. He, he repeats himself. This is like the third time. Again, it's a military terminology. It's like you've been putting these things on, and now he commands you to take up the helmet of salvation in verse 17. And it literally, literally means the hope of salvation. Jesus Christ. Take up Jesus Christ. And what we mean by that is have you spent time in the word understanding and knowing and growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ? Because God's word tells us we have the mind of Christ. We have God, the Holy Spirit, dwelling in us. And so we need to spend time understanding and listening to the words of Christ. If Satan can get you to question your faith, then he's having a good day. Because most people that I know that question their faith aren't doing work that God's called them to do. I've actually ran into too many Christians that tell me, I pray every single day the sinner's prayer. I'm like, why? I want to make sure I'm saved. Well, we're to trust in him. And if I believe his word, and I've confessed him as Lord and Savior, asked him for forgiveness, says that he saves me and does that work, am I doubting? That's the work of the enemy, to get you to doubt the word of God, the truth of God. Ephesians chapter 1 says this about your salvation. If you're asking that question this morning, take up the helmet of salvation. Ephesians 1.13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And I want to tell you this. I believe one of the great lies that Satan does is go to the believer and says, Hey, you can lose your salvation. And if so, then we're telling God's word that, we're, that he's lying to us. Because if we're sealed as his children for eternity by the Holy Spirit, we need to believe it. And we need to rejoice in the fact that God prepares a place for us, an inheritance for eternity with him. And John chapter 10 says he's a great shepherd and he will not lose his sheep. And so when we declare, man, I don't know if I'm saved or not, or I want to lose my salvation, then we're attacking the word of God and saying, God, you're not a good shepherd. You're not a great shepherd because you can lose me. And you're putting yourself in the place of God. It says, take up the helmet of salvation. Verse 17, take up the sword of the Spirit. The one weapon. What is the sword of the Spirit there in verse 17? What is it? The word of God. I'll just tell you this. Pastors at times struggle being in the word of God. 
<gasps> it's horrible. It's a challenge for pastors to not just spend time to prepare to preach or teach. They need, I need, time in God's word just for me, just to know the word of God. And you do too. We have so much technology today. You're like, I don't have time. Tons of you have phones that you can hit play and listen to the word of God while you're driving. Don't do it while you're driving. Do it before you take off. We have, I mean, I was looking the other day, I've got like 20-something Bibles on shelves. I'm like, man, why do I need so many different versions and stuff of that? How many of our Bibles, the average American has it's either seven or eight Bibles in their house. That's not Christian. The average American does. But yet we have that sword and we don't wield it and use it when Satan attacks. Jesus used it in Matthew 4 when Satan showed him the kingdoms. He says, hey, uh, bow down to me and I'll give you all this. And Jesus used the word of God to rebuke Satan. He says, get away from me. Hebrews chapter 4, verse, 4, verse 12. Hebrews chapter 4. Verse 12 says this about the sword that we're given. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You need to live in the word of God and wield the weapon of the sword. And this last part we're going to spend time two weeks from now and coming back to it, but in verses 18 through 20, we see that we are to pray and watch as you take your stand. We're to pray and to watch as, you t as we take our stand. In verse 18, he says, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Pay attention to how many times the word all is used there. And he says, also pray for me that words are given for me to open my mouth boldly and proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. The night that Jesus Christ was arrested, the night that he was taken and he went through an illegal trial and he was beaten and punched and spit on and his beard pulled out and a crown of thorns slammed into his head and he was mocked. He was in the garden with his disciples and he asked them to pray. And Jesus went off a short distance from them. He said a stone's throw so they could hear. And he said, Father, if there's another way, take it away. And three times, each time he went back to his disciples, they were sleeping. His guys, his mighty men, they were asleep. And in Luke 22, verse 45, he comes back the third time. He says, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. We need to be people who are in constant prayer because the battle wages on until the day that Satan is put down. You may not think that something's going on because everything in your life is good right now. The enemy is alive and well. Take a look at why your life is very good. Why you have certain things that you call blessings. Are they truly blessings of God or things the enemy is allowing so that you take your eyes off Christ? As the worship team comes forward, 
There's always two people in this room. There's always two people in this room. There are people who don't love Jesus and don't believe in Jesus, and there's people who do. There's no in-between. You either have faith in Christ or you don't. And if you're here and you're not a Christian this morning, it tells us why you're not a Christian. You're not a Christian yet because you're blinded to the gospel, the truth of Jesus. It says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, speaking of Satan, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. You hear that? To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so this morning, if you're here and you're not a believer and you're going, man, something's working on me this morning, you need to know that Jesus died in your place for your sins at the cross. And at the cross, he bore the weight of your sin and the wrath of the Father. And he died for you because he loves you. And he was buried in a tomb. And on the third day, that stone was rolled away because Jesus was not there. He rose again. And he is ascended to heaven and he's ruling and reigning now and he's going to return and he says believe in me and you will be saved he doesn't say go to church he doesn't say give an offering he doesn't give a checklist he just says believe in me have you believed in Jesus your Lord and Savior if you haven't trust his word you don't have all the answers but the Holy Spirit will reveal and work in your heart in ways that I can't even explain to you And if you're a believer in here this morning, the other group, take heed of 1 Peter 5, verse 8. 1 Peter 5, verse 8 through 11. It says, Christians, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour Resist him. Did you hear that? Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him. Be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Isn't that good news? Isn't that something we can rejoice about? Let's pray. Father, I pray in the prayer I was reading this week. Father, may our hands never weaken, our feet never stumble, our sword never rest, our shield never rust, our helmets never shatter, Our breastplate never fall as our strength rests in the power of the mighty God who has conquered Satan, who has conquered sin and death. Jesus, you're the one who's won the victory. Jesus Christ, you are a king of kings and lord of lords. You are our great commander, and we want to give all the glory to you, all the thanks to you. Thank you so much for loving us so greatly that you would forgive us because you said in your word that we were enemies but you brought us in as your children. May you be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. I love that we have the word of God because uh, I used to coach high school sports and, and uh, if, you don't, if you didn't understand, I, sometimes I like to yell, get excited and someone after the first service said, oh man, you're like 
cheering it. I'm like, yeah, I felt, yeah, they too. But like, hey, it's not about any way that I present something. It's all about God's word. And I want to read you Revelation because this is what we go out today. It's God's word in Revelation chapter 12. It says that Satan's been put down and it says this. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time short. I don't know how many days you have left or hours in this world, but God's given you work to do. Satan's time is limited. And so as we go, we need to stand firm. We need to pray. We need to be in the word of God and ask that the Holy Spirit would use us to be a light to the world, but that he would help us, empower us, and fill us with the spirit of God that we could stand in the attacks of the enemy. As I pray for you this week, pray for me. God bless you.